Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So again, today we have another really interesting episode with a founder that has gone through the journey of building, scaling, financing, and exiting. You know, his last company, he sold it to Electronic Arts, and we're going to be really talking about what that journey was. And then also, what is the journey now that he has embarked on, on this other rocket ship that he's building? Again, we're going to be talking about, you know, really, really cool stuff. You know, for example, like how you go about going through a competitive process like the one that he went when getting his company acquired. Also, the uh, misunderstanding, you know, around games. Uh, also, the thing that the, how his childhood also, also shaped the way that he thinks about games and then also different cycles when it comes to games. And, and we're going to be talking about culture, team, all of the above. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mark Mayunsik Otero. Welcome to the show. Great. Thank you very much for having me, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be here. So you grew up in South Korea near a U.S. military base. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? <laughs> Tough. You know, I grew up in a very, very extremely modest um, neighborhood. In fact, um, our home was a cinder block, probably just a little larger than this tiny room that I'm sitting in right now for a family of four. And um, didn't have many toys, um, but I'll tell you what we did have is I ended up befriending um, some people who lived on the military base. It was a U.S. military base, and you know, as as an, you know, most people, most Koreans, um, you know, they grew up with anime. I didn't grow up with anime, so I grew up with Western literature, Western comics, uh, and Western stories like Dungeons Dragons and BattleTech, and that laid the groundwork and the seed you know, for me later on as a, you know, making games for, for entertainment and, um, going through, um, the adversity that I went through as a child, um, was, was interesting because it allowed me to feel these primitive needs like hunger, safety, shelter, um, in a way that I think, many people here in the Western world take for granted. And certainly, I'm a father now with two sons. They don't have to worry about food or shelter. But growing up, I, I had to think about those things. And those would become the seeds for my thinking when I'm designing entertainment role-playing experiences for players. So how do, you, how do you end up coming to the U.S. eventually? And I guess before even that, you got into reading books, you know, as well. So first, how do you get like that crazy interest into reading books? And then also, how do you find yourself in the U.S.? I, I think as a young man, you know, when you're going through hardships, as a way, as a, as a coping mechanism, you tend to fictionalize things. You tend to create stories. And so your imagination really begins to blossom because you're coping with the reality of something that's a lot harder. Um, basic things like access to food or clean water. And so when my brother's older friend played Dungeons and Dragons with us, I had a hard time understanding him because English is a second language for me. It's not my first language. However, the stories and the art compelled me to want to learn about this world, this mystical fantasy world. And I became drawn to it. 
So much so that it forced me to pick up a very advanced language and words. And so I learned the English language largely through this game and by having a dictionary next to me to help me translate. And it developed not only my vocabulary, but it fed my desire to fictionalize this crazy world that surrounded me at the time as a child. And obviously that that was incredible because that gave you a niche about reading, you know, something that would serve you very well later on. I guess, how do you come to the U.S.? Was it like much of a culture shock? It was beyond a culture shock. And so <clears throat> my mother had left us for a period of time to escape um, a very tough environment, a very abusive environment. My father, had, my biological father has lost his job because, uh, you know, he stabbed somebody in the hand with a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> he lost his job. And so, and so my mom escaped that. And she, she said to my brother and I one night, hey, Myungshik um, and Youngshik, that's my older brother. You guys got to stick together. And mom's going to come back for you later. Um, but you must stick together and know I'm going to come back. So she left. And so it was just my brother and I left her own devices, <laughs> rummage around, stealing food, doing what we need to do to survive. And so... You know, from that experience, my mother then married a, um, a soldier from the military base. And so, in other words, that became our golden ticket for a new life here in the West. And, and so before, before that happened, I mean, was your, was your father still around or you guys were like completely out there, you know, on your own? Well, he would come by uh, a few times a week, but we were on our own. We were wow. left home. It was a crazy period of time. This is what I meant by a very modest upbringing and learning uh, about adversity at a very young age. And how old were you? We were uh, four years old. So my older oh brother was, was eight. And so we lived in that period of time for, for a bit. Um, but we learned a lot. We learned how to survive. Uh, we learned how to meet, you know, you know, meet our needs. We, and we also learned how to be extremely independent um, without, um, without much guidance because we had to because we're relying upon our, our primitive needs to survive. <laughs> and I think part of this childhood trauma um, is perfect match for an entrepreneur to navigate uncertainty and to have incredible belief in yourself to deliver. And so I think it was all these, this early childhood trauma led to the building blocks of, of a future entrepreneur because, uh, you know, we all have fears, we all have doubts, we all have insecurities. Um, but when you when you overcome these challenges, one thing I learned is you build confidence in knowing how to overcome the hard things in life. And once you know and you develop that confidence, not that everything gets easier, but you have the confidence to pursue big, bold ideas. Wow. I mean, this is absolutely incredible, Mark. And I, and I fully agree with you there because ultimately being a founder too is, is all about how you're able to be with uncertainty, you know, and, and, and obviously the fact that you had to endure, you know, that type of experience, although incredibly painful and challenging at such a young age, you know, it served you very well later on. So at what point does your mother come back and then how do you guys come to the U.S.? Yeah, so my mother returns one night. Um, and it's a funny story. This was in the uh, the late seventies, and uh, she also, um, you know, one luxury item that we did have was this tiny little TV, this black and white TV. 
So she took us and she took the TV. <laughs> and a week later, um, we were packing our bags and I asked my mom, where are we going? And she said to this place called the United States. I had no idea what that was. And so I got on this plane for the first time. But here was the funniest thing. In Korea, I was used to just seeing Koreans, you know, just everywhere in my rhythm of life. And, and, and in Korea, you know, the lowest caste of the least educated for the most part in Korea, you know, were the janitors. And so when I came here to the U.S., I had seen Western movies. It was my first time when I saw a Caucasian janitor. And, and I asked my mom, what is going on? How come he's not Korean? And my first meal, you know, when we set foot here in the U.S. was at Kmart. And it was a corn dog. And I never had a corn dog before. It was like the most delicious, succulent, greasy thing I'd ever <laughs> had. <laughs> I just chowed that down. And so Kmart and corn dogs have a very special place in my heart. <laughs> I hear you. Now, eventually for you, you ended up uh, going after computer science. So out of all things, what, what caught your attention for computer science? You know, I didn't know anyone who knew how to program to make the type of game design experiences I wanted to create. And so I started taking computer programming classes in high school. And so during the summertime, I was one of those nerds who took eight hours a day programming classes um, through one of their special programs. And so that's when I started to develop my own role-playing games. And in parallel, I was a dungeon master for the second edition of um, Dungeon Dragon rule set. And so I had, I had two different groups that I would uh, create stories and adventures for. And I would take those adventures and I would codify them in, in, in computer programming language. At the time, it was BASIC and Pascal. And so I was like, you know, since I can't find someone else to program my ideas, I better learn how to do this. And I should probably pursue a computer science degree. So I stayed local here. It's where all my family is. And went to Sacramento State University, got my computer science degree there, then decided to get my master's degree. So I started to pursue AI. Um, and I was like, this is kind of boring. I need to learn some new skills. Then applied to UC Davis, got into it, and uh, specialized in the psychology of marketing. And that's when I started to understand things about the psychology of products and needs and, um, and paired that with, you know, my desire to create products that, that really facilitate aspiration fantasies for people. So what I mean by that is, as human beings, you know, we have a lot of desires. One of those desires is love or to be loved. Um, another desire is to feel empowered or to feel, to have power fantasies. You know, you're an important person. You're empowered to lead the changes in your life. And the third thing too, I think is a fantasy that many have is wealth. And so these three, um, very powerful aspirations is really part of the inspiration of, of how I design games is I first start with recognizing, um, unmet needs. And then I look to optimize those unmet needs by creating a role-playing game experience for the player. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, we create and facilitate stories and adventures that meet a very um, aspirational type of fantasy goal that they may not fully feel fulfilled in life. And so when designing games, the psychology of understanding human needs and human desires 
without ideology, whether it's religious or whether it's some other ideology, whether it's life, left, center, right, doesn't matter to me. Instead, I recognize as a human, you know, through millions of years of human evolution, you know, we have developed a certain set of, of, of desires that have been pressure informed by the environment in a very competitive way. And so, for example, if we see, if I see, you know, I'm married now, but if, you know, if there's a very attractive woman down, you know, walking down and she has all the right dimensions and races, whatever it is, these, these signals, these beauty signals, as, as a man, you know, primarily within, I may respond to that and look and then look away. And, and so I recognize that. I recognize that we're human. I recognize there's millions of years of human evolution that have been informed our desires. And we try to, we try to capture that and acknowledge that from a first principles. So that doesn't matter what ideology or religious beliefs you have. We recognize you as a human, as a human being first. And then we create an experience that facilitates those desires that are unmet. Is now, I mean, it makes total sense. And, and I think that's quite profound what you just share there. Now, it sounds like gaming was really your passion. How, how do you get distracted by asset management and you don't go into gaming in first place? I couldn't get a job in the gaming industry. <laughs> I didn't have the experience. And quite frankly, I probably wasn't as tenacious enough. And I applied to several gaming companies, um, including Electronic Arts, Activision, and a bunch of others. No one accepted me. So I was like, okay, I better go get a, a normal job and uh, learn some life skills. And so I eventually joined uh, Frankel Templeton Investments, which was great, which was fantastic. And in a very short period of time, kept getting promoted. And I, I, I initially thought very naively that if I made more money, my happiness would increase. But what happened was, you know, when I was in my early, late 20s to early 30s, is that the more money I made, the happiness wasn't correlated with that. And so I knew something was wrong and I knew I needed to make a change because more money um, wasn't going to make me feel purpose in my life. So I wasn't happy. So walk us, walk us through that moment where all of a sudden, you know, you realize really what you're just alluding to and you're like, I got I to gotta shift gears. And you just gave your notice. You sell your house. You move <laughs> in with your mother. And you completely change career paths. I mean, this is quite unbelievable. So walk us through that. Yeah, so about three and a half years in, you know, I became a manager. So I was managing uh, a data department. And um, I realized I made a lot of money for a man in his early 20s. And I had a house and a car. And as a young man getting laid on a regular basis, <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> but even that was not satisfying. And so I made the connection that more money pursuing what I was pursuing would not lead to more purpose in my life. Therefore, I would not be happy. But it took me a total of five years. So three and a half years was that recognition when I got promoted. And then over the course of a year, I began to plan and save everything. 
And, and so I prepared for the exit. So by the time I got to year five, I was ready with a plan. Sell my house, let my mother know who I thought, she thought I was absolutely crazy. She goes, what is wrong with you? You know, we made all these sacrifices to come here. You have a great education. You have a great paying job. You have health benefits. What in the world is going on with you? And that took some time with my mom. It took about six months of socializing. But then she loved having me home because she loves cooking. And she expresses her love through food. And so she loved. So I gained like 15 pounds living at home. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, I knew, okay. Then I spent six months doing absolutely nothing. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to shave my face. I don't have to shower. I don't have to do anything. And then after about six months, I, I, I got into a bit of a panic. Like, oh my God, I got to go do something. <laughs> and um, I was like, okay, I need, I need a, a potentially low budget capital investment in some business that has some type of sustaining revenue. And so I looked into all the businesses around and I was like, huh, there's a new kind of like trend in, you know, trend in uh, LA with Pinkberry and frozen, frozen yogurt. They only had one store at the time. I had never tasted it. And so I hired a food chemist in Arizona to help me craft and understand the chemistry of frozen yogurt and all the different types of ingredients that go in there. And so I created my own formula of a natural frozen yogurt. And I called it uh, Zang, Z-A-N-G. And then I did a guerrilla marketing around the area about this brand new, highbrow, all-natural yogurt shop. And I had 400 customers in my day of opening. And it cost oh me $50,000 investment. It was a hit. It was a, it was a grand slam. And I had lines out my door. Um, the press was there. Every major press in Sacramento covered my yogurt opening. And, and then I learned something else. Man. I only make like a buck 75 on each one of these yogurt cups to sell, to make over $10, you know, I've got to sell like eight to 10 yogurt cups. I was like, uh, this business has a low barrier to entry. Other people were now copying me. Um, and so to me, it wasn't a sustaining or exciting business model. And so I decided to, to take the capital from there. And I said, okay, let me put my computer science degree to use. There's a new thing called apps. And so I learned how to create apps. I created 30 of them. They all failed. Um, but I learned something from each one of these apps. I had like three dating apps. Uh, two of them blew up. They had over half a million daily active users. However, they were all in the wrong markets. <laughs> they were in markets that were difficult to monetize with AdSense. And so the server bills to manage these apps, ate all the revenue that came in. And then in app number 30 and 31, I started to experiment um, with virtual goods, just really lightweight testing, and just Western markets, specifically the US. And I had a co-founder at that time that was helping me with the coding, and we're both just coding. And these little apps that were targeting these tier one markets were suddenly making more money than anything else. When I say more money, I mean like 50. 50 bucks a day, uh, every day. And I was like, you know what? The math just isn't working. I'm tired of putting money into these apps. Let's do something that's serious. Um, my business partner disagreed, but he says, okay, I'll stick it out with you. What do you have? I'm going to make a game, a role-playing game called Superhero Cities. He's all, you are crazy. You've never made a game before. This isn't going to succeed. 
and it's going to use up, you know, all of our time and it's going to use up all the, you know, the profit from the yogurt shop. And so, you know, he disappeared for a couple months. And in those couple months, I designed my first game. I read every single game design book that was out there that I can get at Borders Books and Barnes and Nobles, just consume them. Um, then I studied the marketplace and I asked myself, what game can I afford to make on a low budget? What game can I make that plays to my strengths as a, as a dungeon master? And what market should we go after? And so the first one was, okay, I can make these collectible combat RPG game where you collect a bunch of heroes, you know, you put them together in a party and then you go combat. And so I designed that uh, over, you know, between serving yogurt cups and then hired a team who had never made a game before by putting up a Craigslist ad that basically said this, if you want to pursue your dream in the game industry and never had your chance, here it is right here in Sacramento, above a yogurt shop in the stock room. But I have to be clear, we're going to pay you poorly. The hours will be long, but you'll be pursuing your dream. So I hired a cake decorator from Safeway, <laughs> the supermarket, who liked to draw. I hired a, um, a pizza delivery boy um, who was, you know, he had hobbies in terms of creating graphics. Yes, yeah, so I hired him. I hired a con artist who stole about ten thousand dollars from me, and um, and just hired, you know, a couple college students, and I shared with them my game design documents with all the mathematical formulas, um, and I said, "Hey, here it is." And then what should have taken perhaps three months took end up six months, and at this point in time, I had burned through all the profits profits from my yogurt shop. And we didn't have much money left in our bank account. And I got discouraged. I was like, oh, man, I don't think this game is good enough. And my business partner, his name is Ken Walton, goes, Mark, let's just launch it, okay? So he took a break, and then he came back, and he saw what was built. He's all, this is incredible. He goes, let's just launch it. So we launched it. Nothing happens. And then a month later, on 4th of July, I get a call from him, Mark. You're not going to believe this. We made $240 today. That was the most we had ever made from any app. And I go, that's great. Next day, $360 to $380. A month later, $1,000 a day every day. A month after that, three dollars to $4,000 a day every day. By the end of the year, tens of thousands of dollars every day this one game was generating. And where was the money coming from? How was the how was that money being generated from the game? From the from the United States. And so, so was that was that ads or people buying credits or what was the money uh, uh, coming? Where was it coming from? So we were using PayPal to handle transactions, and and so the money was coming from people who wanted to collect more characters or more powers within the game. And so as you're making as you're progressing through the game, you can accelerate your gameplay. Um, by purchasing um, these these packs at the time, you know these packs contained powers and equipment, and 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 players were buying these things, um, and some players were spending a thousand bucks at a time, and other players would spend up to ten thousand dollars to get these to get the most desirable things in these gotcha packs. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So what do you think happened? Because I mean, one month in and and no movement. I mean, anyone would have pulled the plug. I mean, what what do you think was the uh that 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 event that that triggered this for 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 then all of a sudden, you know, to 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 break through? What happened? Yeah, so here's what happened. My business partner goes, Mark, let's spend about $500 in, in advertising and user acquisition through Facebook. And let's just, let's target men in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Because that's where we're seeing some activity. It was just a guess. And so we spent and blew $500. What was remaining of our budget? We had nothing left after that. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Go ahead. Let's try it. And it was after we spent the $500 that now we're making $200, $300 every day. And so our, L, so our, our cost of acquisition was very promising. At the time, we didn't understand the concept of LTV, but we understood this concept. If we spent $500 and we made back two or $3,000 a couple weeks later, we have a flywheel here where we can spend as much money advertising within the game and we can make it all back within a short period of time. And we got lucky as well. There was a new ad partner called Rock U at the time who had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. They had this huge ad network. And to do business with them, to, to send traffic your way, you have to give them tens of thousands of dollars. But we didn't have that. And so what we told them is you know we had a couple thousand how about we wire you guys some money because we don't have a we don't even have a checkbook it just so happens they did not have controls for wiring so when we wired them the initial couple thousand dollars they gave us a fifty thousand dollar credit <laughs> and so we used the entire fifty thousand dollar credit and we made all that money back within a less than a month's time and the game was just generating just cash, just ridiculous amounts of cash. And we're like, okay, this isn't going to last long. You know, this will probably last, you know, four to six months. But lo and behold, we're hitting new records every month. 
And at this point in time, whatever money that was coming in, we would put it all right back to advertising and we would make it all back again. And so PayPal flagged us and said, hey, this is very strange activity. Uh, this is very unusual. We're going to hold $100,000 of the payments from you. And in that moment, we're like, damn, we're going to, we're going to have to raise some capital. And so we raised a very small seed round of 100K to get over that period of time. It was because PayPal flagged this as possible fraudulent activity. And they were going to hold it for three months. <laughs> with no warning, with no warning, by the way, they literally yeah, I mean, hold this overnight. That happens all the time. I mean, it's 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 just awful. And you see that with, with other credit card processing, you know, companies too. But in any case, you know, for you guys, it ended up working out well. You know, you ended up, building a very successful game studio and you rolled out, you know, not only one, but, you know, other, another game there that was also very successful and you just kept going. But electronic arts, you know, comes knocking, you know, all of a sudden there is a competitive acquisition process that starts. How, how does the whole M&A thing start and make us insiders into that process? Sure. So at the time, <clears throat> as a game designer, um, and producer, I, I learned some very important things about, about games. I learned that people exchange their time for activities that provide mental rewards, where the more, the more they play, the more we're facilitating some type of psychological need. And the TLDR for that is that you could think of these games like a dopamine curve over time. And then as you progressively play the game more, you get these chemical releases in your brain. So this is all mathematical, completely engineered. And every game, for the most part, will have a slightly different dopamine pattern for new users, veteran uh, players, and elder players. So I knew this already. Um, but there's a layer that sits on top of a game. This is going to answer your question, which is the graphics, the user interface, the sound, and the music. Our games were atrocious. They were just so ugly to look at. But once, if you can overcome that and you can tap in to the mathematics of the game, we know you will enjoy it. So I thought to myself, okay, Electronic Arts is known for making AAA quality games. I know these games are made up of two layers, the user experience layer, what everyone thinks is the game with the graphics and the sound, and then layer two, what I call the mathematics layer. I was like, if I learn how to master the layer one of the user experience layer, I believe we can widen the funnel of users to make the game more accessible, to funnel them into the mathematics and the psychology of what these games facilitate. And so for me, we met EA at a gaming conference, and EA at the time had acquired another free-to-play studio, I think for three to four hundred million, called I think it was called Playfish. And so they were entering into the free-to-play space. What caught their attention was our metrics. They couldn't believe the amount of revenue that we were driving on a per-user basis. It was just unfathomable to them. And they initially thought we were a scam artist, a fraudulent company. And so at the time, the second in command, his name was Michael Chang, who discovered us for Electronic Arts, said, okay, um, we want to do some due diligence on your accounting. 
And so they hired a forensic accounting firm and went through all of our math, all of our financials, and realized these guys are the real deal. They have some breakthroughs here in terms of the science of free-to-play gaming for RPGs. And Kabam was also doing, running due diligence on us as well, too. And they said, oh, yeah, these guys are for real. And so <clears throat> it was through a six-month period of time where you had really Kabam and Electronic Arts investigating every aspect of our business. And they realized that our metrics were real, that we were driving ridiculous um, ARP Dow um, in, in a way that was 20 to 30 times higher than what they were used to seeing. And so we had made a number of inventions. And most of these inventions were once again related to the psychology of meeting unmet needs and maximizing them to the highest degree. And so through this process, I met one of my heroes. His name is Dr. Ray Mazuka. He's the co-founder of BioWare. And he had sold this company a couple of years beforehand to Electronic Arts. And so they sent Dr. Ray Mazuka and his landing party of executives to investigate us to see if this is, a, this is a good fit. And he was one of my heroes because he made Baldur's Gate uh, number one. And, and that was a game that I played you know, in college. And so as they began to investigate, they're like, no, these guys are very innovative. They figured some things out. We should definitely acquire them. And that's when I met the president of EA at the time, Frank Chabot. And I remember the president asked me straight up, you know, after we went through this process, Mark, why are you selling your company? <laughs> it's just not high. Why are you selling your company? Because he saw our balance sheet is very healthy. And I said, man, I can either lie to him or tell him the truth. <laughs> I was like, Frank, so I decided just, just to be candid. I said, Frank, we're doing good now. We figured some things out. Um, but I'm afraid that EA is going to figure out what we're going to do and make better looking games. And you're going to crush us. That's what I told him. And then he smiled ear to ear. And then his next question was, Mark, what's wrong with our latest free-to-play game that was failing at the time? I wasn't expecting that question, but thank God I played that game. And I looked at him, I said, I enumerated three things that were wrong with it. And then he had this huge smile on his face. And he says, okay, let's talk. And so that was near the final ending of this process. Um, and then the final, final gate was what the CEO at the time was John Riccatello. And he got me into the room. He goes, I want to meet this character. And John Riccatello and I debated, debated for 90 minutes on game design and game design experiences. And he turned around and he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, okay. And then he left. And then a month later, the deal closed. So it was a total process of six months. That's unbelievable. Uh, and what was it, 30, 35 million? Yes. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Now, you did stay, you know, quite a bit in, in EA. You know, you guys uh, did also, like, tremendous stuff. You were also involved in, in really incredible games, like, for example, one of them, which was, uh, it was Galaxy of Heroes that actually, you know, ended up performing very well. But, hey, as the saying goes, as an entrepreneur, you, you're always an entrepreneur. And, you know, it didn't take long until all of a sudden you find yourself launching your latest baby 
Astra Games. So walk us through, you know, what needed to happen for you to really feel at peace with going at it again. Yeah, so, you know, my last game was, um, as you mentioned, Galaxy of Heroes, it was Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. And um, I felt like at that point in time, I had kind of peaked in my knowledge base. And, you know, for me, if I'm not learning, I'm dying. And, and so I didn't know if a better game could be made. And so I had reached this peak knowledge point. And that's a very ignorant and arrogant thing to think now that I'm looking back, because there's still a lot more things I could have learned. And so after that, I, I was done. That was my eighth collectibles and combat RPG game, by the way. So I made eight of them in sequence, either designed, produced, or directed. And so after working on the same type of game eight times, you know, you, you kind of want to change because you, you want to do something different. That's a, you know, it's a natural human thing to do one something different. And so I took some time off and I realized I was incredibly miserable. And so I had to create work for myself and uh, create problems that weren't there <laughs> to solve. And, um, but I found myself playing games about eight hours a day, every day, which I hadn't done in years. So I was playing three games and, um, I was like, God, you know, I would change this thing about this game. I would change this thing about this game. And I was back in a creative moment. And so I was like, you know what? I, I got to get back in games. And I had this gentleman, his name was Nathan Fong. He's made eight games with me. Um, he's a user experience uh, master. And he goes, Mark, he would visit me every year. He goes, Mark, when are, you, when are, we, when are we making the next game again? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And then finally in, in 2021, um, I started to meet with members of the team that I had worked with before um, at, called uh, EA Capital Games. And in December of 2021, I was like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's try it. And so in January, I began calling up my network. I said, hey, I'm back. I called up Michael Chang, you know, who, who was the, the corp dev champion for the acquisition of Click Nation to become EA Capital Games. And I called up my old co-founder. They all said, yes, let's do it. And so we went out to the market um, in March, uh, you know, in February to raise a seed round. I didn't know how much money we're going to need at the time. And I didn't even know what type of game we're going to make other than it was going to be another collectibles and combat RPG game. And through a two-week process, we received four preemptive offers um, of about 15 million. And so we closed the seed round in April with Andreessen Horowitz, um, led by John Lai and Ariana Simpson, and with NFX co-leading with Levi uh, Gigi Weiss. And so began bringing back the team. We're about 30-something people by the time we get to about um, August, uh, the November timeframe. You know, at a board meeting, we provided an update on the progress of the team and the product. I was asked to provide an operational update to Andreessen Horowitz. I thought it was just going to be three or four people. And in that operational update, I was going to provide an abridged version of a masterclass in RPG game design. Little did I know, 26 people from Andreessen Horowitz showed up, including Ben Horowitz and Chris Dixon. And it was a ambush. <laughs> we had no warning. And worse, I was 15 minutes late, which I'm never late to these pitches. 
because there was a car accident that derailed in front of me and I was stuck in traffic. And of course, that just sounds like the dog ate your homework bullshit. And so I'm going up the elevator. I don't realize there's now over 30 something people on this line, 20 something people from Dreesen Horowitz, six people from my team. I finally log in and I see all these faces and I go, holy shit, did I just fuck up? And so I go into an operational update. I go into what's called Professor Mark mode, where I go into teach mode about the psychology of gaming, how to construct games, how to think about every single game system and what purpose they serve and um, where you should innovate and where you don't have to innovate as much. An hour after that call, uh, I received a call from, I won't say which partner, he goes, Mark, that was the worst meeting I've ever gone to. However, you recovered. And an hour later, uh, they offered to, to double down on us with an extra 10 million. And so the total seed in the seed plus round was $25 million led by Ariana Simpson and John Lai um, with pro rata participation from the followers. And so moving to the present date, um, we're going to announce the name of our game. It's, it's a very important game to me because I, I feel and I sense in this modern society here in the West, especially within the U.S., things feel like it's kind of broken. And people seem to be more divided than they've ever been before. And there appears to be a level of corruption that have become so socialized. It's, 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 you know, it's rubbed right in our faces. And so in other words, we decide to use that as inspiration and create a game experience, an RPG game experience, where it's a mirror image of our current times set in a dark fantasy universe. And so that as you're playing our game, you're going to feel like you are empowered to fix the things that you see broken in our world so it lights your soul. And that in your real life, you feel like you have taken control and you feel empowered because our game is facilitating these challenges that we all see that's happening around us. And so we're going to announce my ninth Collectibles of Combat RPG game in February at a gaming convention called Dice in Las Vegas. That's pretty amazing. Now, for the people that are listening to really get this one, so for Astra Games, I mean, obviously you guys have raised money from really incredible people. And ultimately, they invest in, in, in future, in possibility, in vision. You know, obviously vision is what is going to get people enrolled, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, uh, investors, employees. I guess with that in mind, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Mark, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Astra Games is fully realized, what does that world look like? Mm. That world looks like to me a lot happier people here in the Western markets where people are not as disenfranchised to what they see every day and experience, where they have a software, an entertaining software, where they feel validated and they feel better about themselves. And so the cause for our game is really to empower people to lead the type of change that they want to see in their real physical life and to, and to open their eyes to, to knowing that we see you, we feel you, 
and we're going to provide an entertaining piece of software, a world that validates what you see and to give you the power and the courage to lead the type of changes you want to see in your real life. That's very important to us. Very, very important to us. And so empowering mankind to take action and to feel empowered. That's amazing. Now we're talking about the future here. So I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you now into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment where now you were really, you know, coming out of the yogurt shop and you were wondering, you know, in around 2008, you know, what, what, what could you do around games and, and obviously eventually, you know, like it would evolve into a company, but let's say you had the opportunity of having a sit down with your younger self, maybe even before that, at the moment where you were giving the notice from the asset manager that you were working at. And let's say you were right there standing at the, at the front, you know, door of the place, you know, right. Seeing your younger self coming out of the door and entering what would become the venture world. You know, let's say you were able to stop that younger self on the tracks and give that younger Mark one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Mark, you're going to be okay. That's it. You're going to be okay. And to trust yourself and your instincts. That's it. That's all I would say. I love and, that. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of the challenges that not just myself, but all entrepreneurs have to overcome, you know, because at the end of the day, if you don't believe in yourself, why should anybody believe in you? And my early childhood experience was very formidable. And it made me investigate, you know, human instincts at a very primal level, at an accelerated rate at a young age. And so I became very sensitive to the psychology of these needs as a way of therapy for myself. And it just so happens there's a lot of us here who need that therapy. And what better way to do it in a, through, than through a game where it's not intimidating, where you can play at your own pace and you're feeling a level of control and competency and needs satisfied and validated. And so for me, making games is very personal. I put everything of myself into the game. And the people that I work with, like Justin Jones, who was the zero to one lead game designer of Star Wars, the last game, and John Mons, who was the development director, and Nathan Fong, and Lai Tran and Stephen Kandani and all these wonderful people that were, were back together again is we all share this common purpose that we're here for a greater cause for mankind. And we believe that in our soul. And so that belief system then permeates throughout the company. And it gives us purpose to put in our best work and we put ourselves into the game. And the best art is when you put yourself into it. And so that's how I see these games. They are, they are a literal interface 
a software interface to the human mind where we facilitate and engage your primal human instincts to the highest level. And when I say engage, we facilitate over a period of time to help you experience these things, to feel validated, entertained, and that's what fun is. That's incredible, Mark. So for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Mark at OzraGames.com. Wow, easy enough. Well, hey, Mark, it has been such an honor to have you with us on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. Alondra, thank you so much for, for making the time to, to have this conversation. It was an honor. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.